Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Giles Frost, Chief Executive Officer of Amber, a company that specialises in infrastructure. Amber runs funds including international public partnerships, one of the seven investment trusts listed on the London Stock Exchange that invests in broad infrastructure. Giles, infrastructure is an asset class that encompasses various areas. So first of all, can you tell us what international public partnerships invest in and what it aims to achieve? Of course, and thank you for having me here today. The the fund we run, International Public Partnerships, specialises in lower-risk infrastructure and is really designed for investors who are looking for a very long-term growing yield on investments with a lot of capital protection and the opportunity for capital growth. Okay. Now, do you put debt or equity into these projects? We're kind of neutral about that because we've got investments which are both senior debt, uh, subordinated debt and equity. So what we focus on really is the, is, the, is the rate of return we can get in our investments and the risk in those investments. We're looking to maximise the return but have the minimum level of risk. Okay, and what sort of, what sort of rate of return are you looking for, and have you been meeting your return targets at um, fund level? Well, I'm pleased to say we've been we've been exceeding them actually, because we we listed back in 2006, and we had a target um, target return for investors of between eight and nine percent on the original share price. We've actually been achieving a, uh, an annualised rate of return over the last decade of um, of around about nine and a half percent per annum. And that's been coming through very roughly in terms of roughly half of that's come through in annual yield on the on the shares, and the other half has come through um, capital appreciation in the stock. Okay, interesting, because um, income is actually a really important requirement for many of our listeners. So what level of dividends have you paid out in recent years, and what is your yield at present? Well, at present, we're yielding around about four and a quarter percent on the current share price, which is around about one pound sixty a share. So you can see that, given we listed at one pound a share back in in two thousand and sixteen, there's been quite a lot of capital growth. But income really is you're right. Income really is our main focus. So we invest in assets which have very long term contracts from government bodies or our regulated utilities, where again the cash flow that we receive from those assets is extremely predictable. We've got seventy four percent of our assets in the UK. So we like the UK as a place to invest because the rule of law is very strong. There's lots of confidence in the income we're going to receive from our government counterparties as well as those regulated assets. So income is is the key focus. Where we invest overseas, again, we deal with public sector bodies, so we minimise the credit risk on our assets. Okay, I mean, that all sounds very attractive, but will you be able to continue paying out that level of dividend or even raise it? Because investors are often told if the dividend's high, the yield is high, perhaps it's not sustainable. Well, I think that's that's a very interesting point, and, and certainly uh, I see a lot of people who are income-focused, and that very often is the case. I think that infrastructure is perhaps misunderstood, and it all surprises me that when uh, people write pieces about high-income uh, investments, often infrastructure is omitted from, from those articles, because infrastructure returns should be very sustainable. The average, the average life of the assets that we invest in is well over 30 years, so the income we're expecting from our assets is going to endure for a very long period. The asset which has the longest life in our portfolio has an expected life of over 120 years and should 
generate income from the entirety of that period. So we're very confident about the sustainability of our dividends. We've increased the dividend every year since we started over 10 years ago by um, an average of 2.5% per annum. All our modelling shows we should be able to increase, continue to increase our dividend at that rate, around about 2.5% per annum, for probably the next uh, 15 plus years from our existing portfolio. So we don't even need to acquire new assets to deliver that sort of, of, of revenue growth. Um, you say you don't need to source new investments, but um, presumably you are looking to source new investments. I think the question is with infrastructure being perhaps quite a popular area, are you managing to get new investments at reasonable prices or I've, are you having to pay through the odds to get these projects? There were some, some really interesting trends in the market because, because on the one hand, most governments around the world are promoting additional infrastructure. So here in the UK, we have things like HS2, the new high-speed rail line to go to Birmingham in the north. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of focus on new infrastructure investment by governments around the world. So that in that means there is a supply of new opportunities. But you're absolutely right that the success of infrastructure as an asset class has meant that more investors of all sorts, and that's you know, sovereign wealth funds downwards really, have, have um, wanted greater access to the asset class. So there is more competition. One of the things that we do at Amber Infrastructure, which is a manager of international public partnerships, is we tend to originate opportunities. So we're not reliant on simply buying what you might call second-hand assets. We actually bid to government to be the first investor in assets. So one of our major assets, for instance, is the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which is a super sewer being built underneath the Thames and will stop raw sewage flooding into the Thames when it rains. So we were the bidders in, in a consortium to government to become the um, owners of that tunnel and to finance it. That was a 12-month-plus bid period. It was a very hard piece of work. And because it's quite a complicated process of bidding to government to get that right, it put off a lot of other investors who perhaps didn't have the human resource to actually um, go through that long-term bid process. So I think there are ways in which you can access assets in the infrastructure sector which are... Um, which diminish the competition you'd otherwise see. And I think that um, over the years, we have demonstrated an ability to do that. OK. Now, last year, you invested rather a lot. If I understand it, it's £489 million. Do you think you'll invest as much in your current financial year? Um, I don't think it'll be quite as high as that. And, and that's, that's, um, that's to me, is an entirely expected result because there are no prizes for simply investing lots of capital. What we're trying to do here is improve the amount of return we're giving to our investors and improve the quality of the cash flows. We think the quality of our cash flows are already exceptionally high, given where they come from, broadly government um, institutions and regulated bodies. So we'll only invest where we see real value. Um, but the beauty of the portfolio in one sense is that we don't need to carry on investing into opportunities to deliver the returns that we're currently projecting. We can do that from our existing portfolio. So whilst I certainly think we'll have some significant investment in the next 12 months, if we had no investment, it wouldn't matter. In fact, it would be, it would be perfectly benign for our investors because they'd carry on receiving the current levels of return. Okay. Now, you mentioned you would like to invest where you see real value. Um, where is the real value at the moment? 
Well, I think the real value is in the assets which are harder for people to access. So, so I've talked about the Thames Tideway experience. We also um, recently were part of a consortium which bought four gas distribution networks from uh, National Grid. We own a 61% stake in those four networks in our consortium. And I think, again, that was a big transaction because it was such a big transaction. It meant a lot of people couldn't really, really um, organise themselves to bid for it. So that's interesting. We've got a little um, piece of work at the moment around um, digital infrastructure, which is focusing around, uh, you know, fibre optic cables and perhaps sort of the, the infrastructure which might become more commonplace in the future. We've got a vision, for instance, that the fibre connection to, to one's house or, 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 or apartment should be very like the gas or electricity distribution network. It should be a, it should be a content neutral um, conduit into the home. Mm. Now, all of your projects, with the exception of three, which account for about 12% of your assets, are already operational rather than under construction. Do you, do you typically acquire operational assets and why do you do this rather than get perhaps ones under construction? Um, we, I think it's fair to say we do both actually. Mm. So, so the, the assets in construction as a generalisation are not going to provide revenue until they're finished, until they're built. There are one or two exceptions to that and the Thames Tideway Tunnel is an exception. But generally speaking, they're not going to provide revenue until they're finished. So because our focus is on um, revenue generation for our investors, we like to have a balance between operational assets which generate revenue and earlier stage assets which are in construction um, because those early stage construction assets, once they become operational, a, will generate revenue themselves, which will improve the revenue to our investors, but also their capital values tend to increase once they're operational. OK, and presumably they're cheaper to buy than operational assets? They, they tend to be cheaper to buy, but they also tend to be harder to source because you tend to be the first investor into those things. So again, you're tending to go through a complex bid process to government, which again, we quite like doing because many investment funds, as you'll know from your other interviews, are run by managers with quite small teams of people. Mm. At Amber, we've got over 100 people working in the business. And those people are the people who are skilled and experienced in, in those sorts of bid competitions. So we actually prefer getting in at that early stage and going through that um, slightly more complex but ultimately rewarding bid process. Okay. Now, the majority, um, I think, like you were saying, are in operation assets. Do you think that projects under construction, do you think the proportion of those might increase? Or do you keep it at roughly... What is it? So I, think, I think there's a natural, there's a natural limitation on, mm. on what we do. We like that balance because it gives us a balance between capital growth and income certainty. If we had a lot more in construction, we probably would end up having more, um, having less confidence or reduced confidence in our income generating abilities. So I'd say where we are now, 12% is probably around about the sweet spot. So going forward between 10 and 15% strikes me as being a good proportion of assets to have in construction. Okay. Now, turning to your geographical split, um, you seem to have around 70% of your assets in the UK. Um, do you expect to continue having that sort of level or are you going to have more overseas assets? Um We've seen a little bit of fluctuation in that over the years. We've probably had as much as 30% of the portfolio overseas at some stages and we're closer to 25% overseas currently. 
Uh, overseas assets have been good for us because whilst we only want to invest in countries where there's a very settled view of the rule of law, because ultimately um, most of our projects depend on, on governments abiding by their obligations, so we don't want to go to countries where there's sort of deemed political risk. So we've invested in Australia, Canada, a little bit in the US, the sort of northern half of the Eurozone, um, and you know elsewhere we've tended to say no to opportunities. Currently, of course, we've got the um, got the cloud of Brexit hanging over us, and um, that for us has limited impact. On that really is in terms of foreign exchange uh, impact. So we have obviously seen seen sterling weaken against um, most foreign currencies. That means at the moment buying into assets overseas looks, in historical terms, at least relatively expensive. So over the last year or so, our focus has been on UK opportunities more than overseas opportunities, but that may change depending on where sterling goes to. Okay, I mean, you know, thinking about where you might look overseas, um, Donald Trump, US President, says he's going to spend tons of money in infrastructure. Um, should um, the sterling dollar exchange rate be sufficient, let's say, to um, for you to um, invest overseas, would you consider buying into some of these things that Donald says he's going to build? I think the answer is 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 yes. I mean, I mean, I mean, Trump has talked extensively about his trillion dollar plan for infrastructure in the U.S. economy, and I think there are you know positives and you know perhaps just cautionary notes about that. I think on the cautionary side, it's got to be remembered that the federal government in the U.S. actually has reasonably limited infrastructure responsibilities. Um, a lot of infrastructure is the responsibility of states or indeed of individual cities and counties. So federal infrastructure is 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 not insignificant, but it's limited. So I think Trump's um, influence is more likely to be a one of changing the mood in the US towards infrastructure investment, where there has historically been a, a significant underinvestment in infrastructure compared to other uh, developed countries. So I think the infrastructure need in the US is well established. You're right, obviously, to focus on the on the point about um, about pound weakness against the dollar, but we have got three, um, or sorry, beg we've got two investments in the US currently, both in the military housing sector, so this is housing for service people in the US and they've performed very well and they give us a return which is in excess of the return we get on comparable assets in the UK currently. So I think we are optimistic there but we see it as a long-term fairly sort of um, slow growth um, market of, of opportunity rather than a big bang. Okay now you said you target stable countries of good corporate governance but would you say that overseas assets are riskier than those in the UK? Um, we we when we value all of our assets, we we value them um, uh, on a slightly different basis to reflect where they are. So so um, I don't think we'd say they're riskier in terms of the political dimension or the or the confidence we have in the rule of law. The reason why we value overseas assets. Uh, on a slightly different basis than UK assets, is that is that there's a bit more volatility comes through the foreign exchange again. So so assets which are out, out, outside of the UK clearly have a valuation um, uh, input or effect depending on currency. So we value our portfolio in sterling terms. Recently, of course, sterling weakness has meant our overseas assets have become relatively more attractive and more valuable, but obviously that could go the other way. So we tend to value overseas assets at a slightly higher premium to take account of that FX risk. Okay. Now, International Public Partnerships is currently trading on a premium to net asset value of around 15%. 
and looking at its history always seems to have traded at a premium. Why is this and are you trying to do anything about this? Uh, That's a very good question and I'm really glad you asked that question because it's I think another part of the uh, story which perhaps some people don't fully understand and there's a very simple there's a series of answers to that question I think probably but I think uh, in my view, uh, infrastructure stocks should always trade at a premium to their net asset value. And one of the simplest reasons to justify that, I think, is that when we value our portfolio and publish our net asset valuation, then all we're doing is publishing a sum of the parts valuation. So we look at the value of each individual asset we own, and the, we, we add them all up, and that is the total valuation we publish. Obviously, when you've got a portfolio of a size of ours, and we've got a market capitalization now in excess of £2 billion, then we have a very large portfolio of assets. And clearly, if someone was to want to, to, to acquire that portfolio of assets, there's a premium to be paid over the sum of the parts valuation to reflect the size and scale of that portfolio and a diversification of risk within it. So I think that's one very simple reason why, why you're always going to find premiums in, in, in this particular subsector. Okay, and presumably your yield of 4%-ish um, also makes it um, attractive to, to income investors? Oh, I think yeah. so. I mean, I think we, you know, we, 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 we carried out a capital raising recently. Mm. Um, we raised £330 million, which was the maximum amount that we, that we had sought. But we actually had subscriptions for over £750 million. So we were, we were two and a half times oversubscribed. And I think that talks to the demand mm. that there is for for Income. stocks like this yes yeah that said um investors are often advised not to buy investment trusts trading at high premiums to nav so you know why would you argue that my listeners and readers should still consider investing in international public partnerships while it's at a you know a premium to nav of 15 percent i think there's a there's a fundamental point of difference here because the the, the concept of nav um, in my understanding, originated investment trusts when most investment trusts were really portfolios holding other listed stocks. So you could look through effectively um, what any investment trust ha- held in its portfolio and you could market to market on a daily basis because there were really just as there was collective investment vehicles holding other listed investments. So it, uh, it never made sense for trusts to be trading at a premium or a discount because you could always hold the underlying assets yourself if you wanted to. Trusts like infrastructure trusts hold assets which, by definition, are, are, are a lot less liquid and a lot less accessible to, to individual um, shareholders. So you can't go off and simply buy into the underlying assets on any sensible basis as an individual without buying uh, stock in a, in a trust like INPP. So I think that um, there is a distinct difference between the premium, which, the premium discount debate on a standard investment trust investing in other equities and an investment trust which invests in less liquid assets. Okay. Now, um, some of the um, investments you hold have returns linked to inflation. Um, to what extent do you have that? And um, would it be a good fund to hold, let's say, if, if this rises? Well, I mean, I think the income story, which we've sort of touched on, goes hand in hand with the inflation story, because most of the assets which we have have revenues which are strongly linked to inflation. 
And when we talk about inflation, certainly for our UK assets, which, as we said earlier, are 74% of a portfolio, then then it's RPI linkage, not not any other lesser measure of inflation. So currently, across the whole portfolio, we've got a roughly 0.89 correlation to inflation. So clearly, if we are in, in a circumstance in the future where inflation is running above current expectations, then we see a significant hedge for investors through holding a stock like NPP, yes. Okay, a useful attribute. Now, we've been talking about um, the stability and relative safety of the investments, but nothing is risk-free, possibly except cash. So what would you say are the main risks to the investments you hold in this investment trust? I mean, I mean, there are risks because uh, any individual project could have difficulties. There could be could be um, operational issues affecting projects. But obviously, by having a big portfolio of them, you minimise the likely consequence of that. No one's going to say if our business is, is without risk. Our businesses, our, our assets, our people, where our places where people go to work, they're essential assets of communities. So we work very hard to make sure they function correctly, and we have very, very good relationships with government bodies as a result of that. But you can never you can never get away from the fact that you have responsibilities to go with those assets, and we take those very seriously. And from a financial point of view, um, one of the measures that's quite useful to look at is the kind of volatility of the stock uh, price over the years. And we now go back um, uh, you know, many years, over 10 years, in terms of having a trading history. The current volatility of the, of, of the um, listed share price against the, the market, against the FTSE All Share, is less than 0.2 for the last 12 months. And I think that that lack of volatility, again, is, is a safeguard for investors because if we do get into more choppy equity markets at some stage or some sort of wider market correction, I think that low level of historic volatility is, a, is an encouraging indicator that capital values in this sector shouldn't be too badly affected. Okay. Now, you don't currently have any gearing or debt at company level, but to what extent do your underlying projects have debt? They do have debt. I mean, infrastructure projects do tend to be financed by, by debt as well as, as well as equity at the individual project level. But we mitigate the risk of that in two principal ways. Firstly, that debt at the project level is, is very long term, so it's generally matched to the length of the life of the asset. And generally speaking, it's at a fixed interest rate. So we don't have that mismatch risk of revenues and costs potentially going out of kilter with each other. So that's one one um, mitigant. The second is that all our assets are held in individual special companies, special purpose companies. So there's no recourse by the lenders of any of that debt up to the, to the, to the fund itself. So if any one project had difficulties, and I'm pleased to say we have no current signs of any difficulties, but in in the event that were, there were any difficulties, then they'd be confined to that one individual asset, not the entire portfolio. OK, thank you, Giles. A really interesting insight into your investment universe. Thank you for having me today. Now, although the IC is all about picking good investments, we're also aware of the importance of passive funds, such as exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short. And one of the ways in which we can help investors navigate this area of the funds industry is with our IC Top 50 ETFs, which Kate has just updated, something we do on an annual basis. Kate, first of all, can you tell us a bit about the list and what it's for? 
So this is designed to be um, a selection of the 50 uh, best ETFs or what we see as the best ETFs across a really broad range of markets um, and assets. And these are supposed to be the best in terms of tracking difference, liquidity, charges, the lowest cost basically on both an implicit and explicit basis. And they're meant to be kind of both a mixture of, of the best broad buy and hold options and the best options, we think, from the kind of more innovative smart beta ETF range. Now, you've divided the list into categories. Um, what are some of these? So I've tried to give a, quite a broad mix of categories. So you've got things you would expect, you know, like UK equities, got US equities, quite a broad mixture of bonds in there as well. Um, and this year I've actually split out a high yielding bond category just to reflect the, the demand for income that we're seeing everywhere and the low yields um, that you find in most of the market. Uh, also got an ethical section this year, which is a new one too. Okay, now I noticed you had rather a lot in the US category. Why have you got so many US funds? Well, yeah, there there are some markets and we do try to kind of emphasise those in this list where passive funds kind of are a good idea on a relative basis against active. Now, the US active managers really struggle to outperform in that market. They really struggle to beat the benchmark. Uh, People always refer to it as one of the most efficient markets just due to that really high level of information that there are on those stocks. So it's a really good one to, to go passive, particularly as stocks in the US are very expensive at the moment as well. Uh, so a low-cost tracker is, is a really good way to get access to the US. I've actually got seven ETFs uh, in the US this time around, and it's a mixture of really broad ones, like S&P trackers, um, and also some more kind of interesting, slightly more active management ETF styles in there as well. Okay, now how do you put the list together? So it's uh, a mixture of quantitative and qualitative analysis. So what I do is get um, a really broad mix of data on on all of the ETFs, basically on the London Stock Exchange, and try and find the best in terms of tracking difference, the best in terms of trading volumes, so liquidity, the largest and the lowest cost. So there I'm looking for kind of just the best ETFs on the basis of liquidity and charges and you know all kinds of costs there i also consult a panel of experts and we talk about um which markets are the best to use etfs for and really importantly which benchmarks you should use in each uh, market because i mean a huge part of going passive is deciding what index you actually want to use um so it's really important to kind of combine both of those things and should say that it's kind of a, a delicate balancing act between working out um, which are the best value ETFs. The lowest ongoing charge doesn't necessarily mean that's the best ETF. It might be really illiquid, um, so cost you a lot in terms of trading. So it's kind of a balancing act of you know working out all of these things and coming up with this list. Now you've just updated the list. So how many changes have you made? So I made twenty four changes in total. Okay. Um, So can you give us an example of um, an ETF that you added to the list this year? Uh, So I'll give an example of one from the US, because as I've said, an important one. Um, I've added iShares S&P Small Cap 600. Um, Previously, I had a Russell 2000 tracker in here, and that is maybe the more commonly known small cap index in the US. But in fact, this is a really interesting ETF because... um, 
Although it's 10 basis points more expensive, in fact, the S&P small cap 600 has delivered higher returns than the Russell 2000 over the medium and the long term. And it's done that with lower volatility um, and it's cheaper on a trading cost basis. So it's quite interesting. And this index is also interesting. Um, it's kind of slightly more intelligent, I guess, than the Russell 2000 because it incorporates only liquid shares um, and tries to kind of rule out unprofitable companies. So it's quite an interesting ETF, I think, and has outperformed. OK, a slightly more sophisticated strategy as well. Yeah. Can you give us an example of an ETF you dropped from the list this year? Yeah, and I should say that um, when we drop them, they're, they're a mixture of reasons. So sometimes it's because um, there is a better... ETF and RIs tracking that index um, on the basis that either it's cheaper or it's more liquid. Um, sometimes it's the fact that we no longer like a strategy. So I guess one example that I've dropped um, would be the iShares MSCI AC Far East X Japan small cap. Quite a mouthful. So this one is in the Asian equities section where we have four ETFs. Now, in this case, I've dropped it because Although it's only Asian small cap option, it hasn't actually outperformed the wider market over the medium term. So there's a question there about whether that's necessarily the best way to access this market. And it's pretty expensive with an ongoing charge of 0.74%. And ultimately... You can buy an active fund for that money. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Ultimately just thought there's probably better ways of accessing that market. Fire ETF. Okay. Now, what are some of the things investors should take note of when looking at um, the IC Top 50 ETF list? Yeah, I think the most important thing to think is this is not a buy list. We're not saying go out and buy 50, these 50 ETFs. And presumably it's not also a sell list just because we drop one. Presumably doesn't mean our readers and listeners should be dropping them. No, quite. As I alluded to there, Sometimes um, I've dropped ETFs because they're too expensive, because I think there is something wrong with them. But in the most part, I'm dropping them because either something else is cheaper, more liquid. And sometimes it's just because I, you know, I still like that ETF, still like that strategy. But we've only got room for 50 here mm. and I might just prefer something else this year. But they both might be good. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that is the case with several, particularly some of the kind of more smart beta ones. Still like them. I have just you know, prioritised other things. So it's definitely not a buy or a sell list. These are just meant to be uh, what I see as the best ETFs in these categories. Okay, so use the list wisely. Now, sticking with passive funds, investors now have a new and low-cost way to access them. Kate, you've also been looking at this. Can you tell us what it is? Well, this is uh, ETF giant Vanguard has um, just set up its own DIY investment platform. So I guess uh, trying to compete with the likes of Hargreaves or, or Best Invest, but in fundamentally a very different way. Okay. I mean, that sounds all very good. You know, a low cost platform. Um, is there anything that's not so good about it? Well, it only offers Vanguard funds. So oh, limitation there. Exactly. So I guess it's more like a, a online shop for Vanguard funds, although it is incredibly cheap. Uh, so it's 0.15% a year annual admin fee, which is much lower than um, comparable DIY platforms. Okay. And can you just buy them or you know, what sort of accounts can you hold them in? You can't buy them in a SIP. Another limitation. But you can buy ICES, junior ICES, general investment accounts. Okay, so you've got a limited range of funds, limited range of accounts, but 
it's the cheapest way to buy ETFs, is it? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if you are looking at uh, trackers and ETFs, obviously Vanguard have a mixture of unit trusts and exchange traded funds, um, then it probably is the cheapest way. Uh, but in fact, if you just look, if you just want to buy ETFs, then in fact, other platforms are pretty cheap at doing that as well. And in fact, if you were just to hold ETFs, IG's platform is potentially cheaper. Um, I had a look at what it would uh, cost to just hold two ETFs in a £20,000 ISA portfolio. And in fact, IG does come in cheaper because it doesn't charge any annual admin fee and it only charges trading fees. So it's definitely worth thinking about what you want to hold. And if you only want to hold ETFs, it might be pretty cheap to use another platform. And you get a choice of funds other than Vanguard funds. Exactly. Okay, thank you, Kate. And you can see her full breakdown of the costs of buying passive funds via various DIY platforms on the website and in this week's magazine. That brings us to the end of today's podcast, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey at Investors Chronicle and Giles Frost, Chief Executive Officer of Amber. You can see the full list of IC Top 50 ETFs and read more on cost-effective ways to buy them in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.